And we're going to start a little different today than we might normally. And so I just want you to just, uh, I'm going to ask everyone just to give me your best attention. Uh, if you're in this room or if you're outside, you're in your home, just really give me your best attention for the next few minutes. So today's section that we're going to look at in a little while from Nehemiah chapter 9, it deals with a key section or piece or pillar of our faith in God. What happens is Nehemiah and God's people, they come to a moment of reality where they see God for who he is, his bigness, his greatness, his holiness, his graciousness, his love. And then with that perspective in mind, they see themselves for who they are. And we're going to talk about that. And what does that look like? And what it does is it leads them to this moment of confession confession of sin. Now, confession, it's been part of the fabric of the faith of followers of Jesus Christ, followers of God since the beginning of time. Confession is the key to being made right with God, to be in right relationship with Him. Confession is a humble admission, and it's an acknowledgement of who God is and who we are in light of His holiness and grace. So we began this whole Rise Up series. I don't know if you can remember back several weeks ago. We began by talking about this series has the potential to lead us to what the church in the last 2,000 years would call a season of revival. See, a revival is basically a time when the church, when God's people wake up to his presence and his power. And at the same time, People who are far from him are drawn in because they see God's presence and power being enacted and worked out through his people. When you study history, it reveals that one of the key elements, key catalysts of every revival that have ever been experienced is confession of sin. Beginning with confession. Confession, it, it, it fans the embers of our faith until those embers burst into flames of revival. So what we want to do today in beginning, before I speak, it's just come to a time or a moment where I'm going to ask you to engage in a time of confession. And just remember, confession is simply me agreeing with God about what he says, about the condition of my heart. So the song that we just sang was put there on purpose because of the chorus. And I'm going to read some words that we just sang together. It says, here I am in the valley of decision. I know, you're, I know you hear me when I call. I repent of my prideful disposition. That's confession. Where was I when the stars rang out? I realized where I fit in this whole thing. So I'm going to ask you to stop whatever you're doing. If you're at home, please put your coffee down just for a minute. If you're driving, please pull over to the side of the road, for goodness sake. If you're watching on your device, please ignore your texts or your notifications. See, the song that we ended, it, was, it ended this way. Only you, God, only you have torn the cover off the darkness. That's how we know confession and know our sin, is that he's torn off the cover of the darkness in our hearts and around us. You expose the evils of the night, only you reveal your glory to the humble. Only you are clothed in light. 
declaration of his holiness. So I'm going to ask if you would, if you'd bow your heads. If you need to close your eyes, you would close your eyes. You would try to shut out the noises around you. And I'm just going to ask right now, that it, would you be willing to ask God to reveal your heart to you, reveal the darkness within you, to uncover that so that at this moment you could say that to God, humbly, I agree with you. Confess your sin to him. Maybe it's relational sin. You've been the cause of disruption in the relationships around you. You've not been willing to forgive. You're holding on to grudge. Maybe it's moral sin. That there's a closet in your life that you're keeping under lock and key. Because you know that in that closet is something that does not honor God. Or possibly you live in hiding. And so you pretend to be something in almost every situation, but you have something you're hiding. could be racial sin. Racial tensions are at an all-time high in our nation. could be that in your heart is judgment and prejudice. And that right now you want to bring that to God. You want to take it out of the darkness and bring it into the light. It could be sexual sin, that you're engaged in activities that would be outside of God's will for your sexuality that you want to say to God today, says, ah, this has been wrong, God. I confess it to you. Maybe for you it's just sin of complacency, that you're just sitting back and you're not acting on what you know to be true. You're not acting on what you know that God has told you that he wants you to do. Maybe it's a sin of rebellion where you know what God said and you're actively running against him or away from him. Or of idolatry where you've just allowed the things of the world that he'd created and he made to become more than beauty, but they become essential to your well-being. Maybe it's compromise. I think right now that we are living in a season of compromise. And maybe for you, you're compromising your values and you want to bring those to God. And then lastly, I just want to say, maybe it's apathy. That as we sang today, we talked about God being faithful, trustworthy, but somehow in your heart, you're apathetic toward his promises. And that today you would want to confess those that is sin and bring it to him. So God, we come before you and we confess our sin to you. Within the strength of unity and community, in the power of our silence, we come before you with the truth of our lives. Trusting in the mercy and love that you have. 
creator God of holiness, mercy, and grace. We offer our confession now before you and before each other. Holy Father God, we know that in so many ways we have run from you and are running from you. We have ignored your call. We have closed your, our eyes to your presence. We have disbelieved your mercy. We have disregarded your words. We have disrespected ourselves and others. And so God, now that we've confessed, we come before you and we ask for your forgiveness. We ask you to stay with us as we turn away from what you would say is wrong and goes against your perfect will and that is hurtful and that we would hurt ourselves and others and that we would turn away from that and we would turn toward what is right and life-giving and that, God, we would experience revival in our souls and that it would be contagious to our world. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining in on that. Uh, it, you're going to see how the, the entire talk now that we're going to do would, will help you in another time when you want to have your moments of confession with God. So I'm going to ask everybody, if you would, to grab your message notes. These will be so helpful as we go through our time together today. You have your Bible. You can open it to Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, you find Nehemiah by going to Psalms and then hanging a left, okay? And you'll find it there uh, and run into it pretty quickly because it has 13 chapters. It's hard to miss as you go through it. Um, so our series began, if you'll remember this, it began with Nehemiah. And he received a message about the condition of Jerusalem and the, really the condition of the hearts of God's people. And, and so he realized that, that something needed to be done. And so he went into a period of prayer and confession and fasting and mourning. It says that he wore sackcloth for four months. And so the period he was in was a period of listening to God and asking God, what did God want? And God directed him that says, I want you to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, restore my city. So Nehemiah, he said, okay, I'm going to do that. So he goes to Artaxerxes, uh, the king, and he says, hey, king, I've been given this message from my God who says he wants me to go to this city, which you are over, and to rebuild the walls. Will you let me go? Will you give me like a leave of absence or uh, a sabbatical to go? And, uh, and surprisingly, the king says yes. Then he says, okay, well, king, well, if you said yes to that, then how about this? Will you pay for it? And once again, the king said, surprisingly, yes. So Nehemiah takes off with a group of people, and he travels the 800 and some miles from Susa to Jerusalem to lead his people to build the defensive walls around that city. So as we've studied, we've looked at week by week in the series, chapter by chapter, um, it was an impossible job under difficult circumstances. And yet despite all of the opposition and obstacles that came against Nehemiah and God's people, they completed the wall in just 52 days. It was a miracle that they could do this in just 52 days. I was thinking about the first day we got to have a service in this building. And I was just thinking about when, you know, it was 2005. And uh, that day, and when we had our grand opening, we made it clear that we believed that this was not the end, that this was just the beginning of something that God had called us to do to 
follow the vision and mission he had given us, to engage together, to lead as many people as possible into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. These walls just represented the beginning. They didn't represent the end. And here's what I knew, but I didn't know how much this would keep me true over time. The hardest part was still ahead. The most difficult part wasn't building this. The hardest part was still ahead, and the hardest part is staying true to God's mission, that he would want us to be here for all those who are outside of these walls, that this would just be a launching pad for ministry where he would call us to go out and reach people to fulfill the mission that he gave us. The hardest part, here it is, that we would refuse, refuse our internal nature to make this building and this place and these programs to be about me, us, those on the inside, and forget about those on the outside. And I can't tell you it's the hardest struggle we face as a church. Because we as humans, the nature is for us to want to take care of ourselves, to want what we want, to be able to have what we want when we want it, in the way that we want it. And, if we, and that must be God's will, right? <laughs> but actually it's not. It's not. There's much more that God has in store for us. Well, I just want to say that's exactly the same challenge that Nehemiah and the people of God faced as they finished the walls around Jerusalem. So we've been looking at Nehemiah, and we've been asking, God, what can you teach us from, uh, through, from the things that they did uh, as they built the wall, but now after they built the wall, that would allow us to be able to have an impact in our world? What are the ingredients necessary to have revival? The ingredients necessary to impact our world. So last week, David Timms was here. I watched it online. He did a wonderful job. I wish I had that Australian accent. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It just listen to him for hours as he talks, right, in that Australian beautiful accent. And he talked about this. He said the key ingredient to staying true to God's call is God's word. God's word, to be enveloped in God's word. Chapter 8 is when he, he walked through the whole chapter last week, and it showed us that the, the word of God does the work of God in the people of God. Just remember that the word of God does the work of God in the people of God, and so we need to be people of the word. The word of God transforms us. When we open our Bibles or we read the words that were written in the Bible, we open ourselves up to God's written word to us. It's his communication to us. It's his speaking to us. The living God and his plan for our lives. So in chapter 8, I, I was loving this when he was speaking last week. We learned that the people of God listened as Ezra. So when they built the wall, they built a podium for Ezra to stand on. So there was some preparation that went into uh, this moment, and then they had him bring out the law, the Torah, and they had him read from the first five books of our Bible, which would be the Bible that they had during that time. And so he read out loud, the people stood for six solid hours. We have a hard time with 20 minutes standing sometimes, right? Or even 30 minutes sitting. <laughs> They stood for six solid hours. And at the end, it says that they, were, they responded with amen and joy over the words that they had read and that they had, had uh, brought into their hearts. And so afterwards, he, they understood, well, you know, we heard about this um, festival of the booths, uh, feast of the booths. And so they said, we're going to do that. And so that's a six-day feast where they would build these little tents and they would go inside to read God's word more. 
and engage with God more in fasting and mourning. So now where we are today is they're coming out of their tents after observing the Feast of Booths, and they've been reading God's word for seven days. I, I don't know if you can imagine this. In your life, has there ever been a time where you just immersed yourself in God's word for a period of time? And then what happens is, is there's a change that happens inside of you. And then you engage in God's word. I'll just say this. God's word will never return void. Never return void. It's truth will always transform hearts. So here's where we are. Coming out of the tents. Chapter 9 then starts with the next observance that they're going to engage in with God's word. So they come out of their booths. They're intoxicated with God's word. And now they're eager for more of God's word. It's actually very surprising. It begins this in chapter 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of the month, of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth. So just a reminder, sackcloth is a garment made of goat's hair uh, so that it would be uncomfortable and itchy. And so it would just, you would never be able to relax in it because it was uncomfortable to wear. And then they put dust on their heads so that everyone would know that they're in this time of mourning. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all the foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins. You have notes, underline it. You have a Bible, underline it. They confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. Because as we're about to see, they're going to, there's going to be a prayer that's prayed here. It's the longest prayer in the Bible. It goes from verse 7 to verse 35, I believe. And it, the entire prayer walks through the ancestral um, rebellion against God and his word by the people of Israel. And so they confessed those sins as well. They stood where they were, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord. And so that means the Torah. So that's the first five books of the, of the Old Testament for a quarter of the day. Now, and when it says quarter of the day here in just a moment, it's referring to day as 12 hours. So they divided day at 12 hours and 12 hours. So the quarter here is, would be a quarter of 12 hours. That means three hours they stood as the Bible was read. And then another three hours they spent in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. And the Levite said, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. So here's the point. When you read God's word, when you engage with God's word, when God's word gets inside of you, when God has spoken to you, you cannot help from responding to it. You must respond to it. What God's, what God's word does, it helps us to see ourselves in light of God's truth. It helps us to see ourselves in light of the way that God created us and how he sees us. It helps us to see who God is. And ultimately, it helps us define reality. And there's a, neat, a huge need in our culture today for a reality check. God's word helps us define reality. So the people were broken by the reading of the word. And in their brokenness, they responded by turning to God in confession. And so today we call declaring our brokenness as the title. Now, I chose brokenness over confession as the title of today, even though it is about confession, because I wanted to push a little bit. Uh, the word brokenness, it's just one of those words that our culture doesn't like. Uh, it just doesn't want, we, people don't want to be known as broken. They want to be labeled as broken. But that's just a misconception, because we're all broken. You don't want to know why? We're all broken because we're all wounded by sin, and as we're wounded by sin, it leads to brokenness. 
And so we all have brokenness that we live with and we live with in our lives. So today I want to talk about how to move out of brokenness into wholeness. And so I'm going to make two observations and then one application. Two observations and one application as we go through this entire chapter today, most of it. And so the first one is this, the first observation. The Word of God is a mirror showing the condition of our souls. The Word of God is a mirror and it shows the condition of our souls. It reflects to me the condition of my heart according to God, according to what God would say. So when you wake up in the morning and you have a routine, I'm sure we all have our routines that we go through, and most of us are creatures of habit, so it's pretty much the same routine every day. At some point before you walk out the door, at some point before you leave, you're going to take a moment and look in the mirror, right? Because you want to make sure that everything's adjusted correctly, that everything's in the right place. Um, people tease me because I've got this crazy cowlick on the back of my head. I can't see it. I don't know what's there. And so now that we're you know, showing a lot of these online and there's a video camera and I turn like this, they tell me that they can all see it when I don't take care of my cowlick. And so I need a mirror to be able to help me to take care of that and make sure it's not laying down now either. <laughs> so there we go. Oh, so we need a mirror. So I I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the first time uh, Kimberly and I uh, went to San Francisco, and uh, it was for a night out. It was to celebrate her 30th birthday, so just a couple years ago. So we got a room at a quaint hotel in downtown. We had tickets that had been given to Kimberly for her birthday to go see Phantom of the Opera. We were going to go to dinner before the show, so we got dressed up. This was a dressed-up event. I purchased a new suit just for this event, and she had borrowed a beautiful dress. So here's a picture. You see that right there? So there we are, her 30th birthday. She looks the same as she does today, doesn't she, wouldn't you say? That's the right thing to say. <laughs> I, I do too. <laughs> oh, so let's just leave that there for a minute. I'm going to tell you a story. So we exited the hotel. And this is, you know, we just came out the door there. We've come through the lobby. It's crowded. People are checking in uh, for the evening. And we stopped, and I had a camera with us. And so I asked the bellhop if he would take our picture. And so this is the picture that he took there. Put the camera back in my pocket. We're walking down the street. And Kimberly just kind of sees something fl- white flashing uh, behind me on my back. And, uh, and she said, stop, just a minute, stop, just a minute. And she stopped me, and she gets behind me, and she says, lift up your arm. And under my arm was the tag from the store uh, <laughs> where I had bought the suit. And you can't see it there. How, thankfully, it's hidden in that picture. Uh, but the tag was hanging down there. And so here I am walking with my best duds, and I'm thinking I'm a stud, and I'm thinking that we look hot, and this is great, and I'm a hick <laughs> with a tag hanging out the bottom of my arm there. Oh, my goodness. I needed someone else to show me. And Kimberly became my mirror at that moment to show me why people would stare. And so what was going on as we were walking down the street? Well, folks, I just say that's exactly what God's Word does for us. It's exactly what it, it points out. The obvious that we cannot see, that we need outside help to be able to see. And that's what's going to happen in these next verses. So what's going to happen is these next verses are going to recount through prayer, uh, how God's people had again and again, over and over, turned their backs on God and gone their own way and called their own shots and doing their own thing. So let's go to verse 16 
And it says this, talking about God's people, but they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked. Would you underline that? Arrogant and stiff-necked. So we all know what arrogant would be, right? We know, uh, especially we see some athletes and they're labeled as being arrogant and that they you know, have to have a certain level of that in order to be the best that they are. Uh, but sometimes that can go to their heads and so they become arrogant and stiff-necked if you're from farming land in any way, you know that stiff neck is kind of what they would describe a horse uh, as the, you wanted the horse to do something. They'd get stiff necked and you couldn't change or turn direction. And that's what he's saying. The people were like arrogant, thinking that they were pretty good in who they were and they didn't need God and stiff necked that even if God did speak, they didn't turn. And they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles. Do you ever do that? You fail to remember what God's done, what he's done in the past, what he may be doing now that you forget. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. Remember, this is all uh, when Moses is on the mountain uh, getting the Ten Commandments. And so they turned to Aaron and say, you be our leader, Aaron. And then the next thing that they did was they actually uh, formed a calf made from gold and they started worshiping that calf as their idol. And then it goes on, verses 26 through 28. And I want you to read, as I'm reading this, as you're you know, reading along, I want you to be thinking there is a, the cycle of four, four pieces, four elements that we're going to see in here that was the same cycle that would be known we know from the period of the judges. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you those in just a minute, but let's just read that. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them. And so they're killing God's spokesman. That's what they did. They killed God's spokesman who had warned them to turn them, to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them. There's the second set of the cycle. You delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed you. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers. You delivered them from their persecution, who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hands of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. I think, I just want to go back to one of the, I don't even going to talk about this, but one of the key phrases, it says, it says there, it says, um, and when they were at rest. We have to be careful, folks, that sometimes when we get at rest, that's when we're really open to temptation and turning away from God. And so they were restful and resting in maybe their own laurels, and they weren't paying attention anymore to what they needed to pay attention to, and they were taken advantage of by themselves. So here's what God's word says. They turned their backs on him again and again. So it was a cycle. So the cycle goes like this. First, um, you have God's people. They're at rest, okay? So they're uh, in great relationship with God. They have peace with their neighbors, peace in the land. And they have, uh, are doing what God has called them to do. And they are worshiping God and only God. First step is they rebel. So the first step is, is that we rebel and disobey God. And that leads to woundedness or brokenness, leads to woundedness or distress, I mean. And then secondly, then, what would happen is, is that as God's people rebelled against him, God would allow consequences, or he would actually send consequences their way to get their attention, 
to show them that their sin was what was causing this problem. So he would allow them to go into some kind of um, difficult situation. Folks, sometimes God does that. He lets us go into difficult situations to get our attention. Third, they would recognize their brokenness. They would make confession to him. They would repent. They would turn back to him. And then they would depend on him once again. And God would deliver them from their persecution or deliver them from their enemies. And then they would be restored to wholeness and flourishing and be at a place of rest again. Now, the wonderful thing about God's word that for me, because I'm like God's people, is that they did this again and again. They did this over and over. They didn't learn from the first time or the second time or the third time. They continually went through the cycle that we see, if you, especially if you read through the judges and see what God's people is like. But then you see it in David, you see it in Solomon, you see it in God's people all the way till we have Nehemiah writing in 445 B.C. So the question is, at what point of the cycle do you think you're at? Um, are you, you know, depending on God and everything, and everything's at peace right now, and you feel like you're at rest? Are you following into some disobedience? Are you hiding some sins in the closet? Are there th some things that you know that God's called you to do that you're not doing? Uh, are you starting to reap consequences from those sins uh, that are becoming visible to others and maybe even relationally harming people around you? And then are you willing to confess and come back to him so that you can come back to rest? So where, where would you be? Where would you be today in your life? And I'd say this. Are you willing to confess your brokenness? Are you willing to repent, as the Bible says, from your wicked ways? And are you willing to return to him for restoration? If you look at that verse on the backside of your notes, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is why people don't want to read the Bible, folks. Because this is the power of the Bible. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So basically what this is saying is this. It's saying the word of God is a mirror that shows me the condition of my soul. The word of God is a mirror that shows me the condition of my soul. So I need to be listening to what the word of God says. Your phones, your social media accounts, they don't show you who you are. Your paycheck, it doesn't show you who you are. Your occupation, it doesn't show you who you are. Your accomplishments don't show you who you are. Your relationships don't show you who you are. The Word of God is the mirror that shows us who we are. And so our goal is to spend time in His Word so that He can speak and show us and define us. I'll say this. We cannot understand ourselves apart from God's Word. We cannot. We cannot know our true selves outside of reading his word and having it come into our hearts. It's a mirror that shows us the condition of our souls, and it's important that we know the condition so that we can be right with him. Second observation is the word of God is a window showing the character of our God. The word of God is a window. So now I read it to look through to see something else, and it shows me the character, the nature of God. Not only does it mirror to me my condition, 
But it actually shows me God's nature when I read it. I look through it, and I'm able to see God in ways that I couldn't see before I went to his word. And that's what it does. So I'm going to give you three things that are in these verses that we can observe about God. There's a multitude more. But here's three things. The first is this. God is the great creator. That's why I love this song, Only You, as we were singing it today, because it said that he's the one who made everything. And when we acknowledge that he's the creator and made everything, then we can put ourselves under submission to him. He's the great creator. So I'm going to go back a little bit and read some verses because it talked about this as it went. But verse 5 says this, Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. Would you underline that? You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts. The earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. It's saying here that God is the creator. The story of the Bible is not a story about us. The story of the Bible is a story about God, his character, and his nature, and how he relates to us based on who he is. The Bible reveals who God is to us. And when you look into his word, what you see, you see his goodness, you see his greatness, and you see how awesome that he is. Second is this, God is the gracious redeemer. We see that he's the gracious redeemer. I was really surprised when I was studying Nehemiah 9 and read through this and found this next verse here because of its significance to us in some of the series that we just had. It says this in verse 17b, you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Do you recognize that from where we've been? <laughs> For sure we do. Therefore, you did not desert them. So this is, I just love this because I need this verse, and this is how it just keeps popping up in our language in the verses that God guides us to over the last few series. We read about it when we went through the series recently on the names of God. We saw it when we went through the series in the story of Ruth. We saw it when we went through the story of Jonah. We saw it in the story of David as we went through the, the David and all that he had done. It's there. God is forgiving he freely forgives. He's gracious. He's full of grace. He's compassionate. He's full of mercy. Some friends tell me recently that uh, one of the slogans that they like to use is, is that God is good and he never has a bad day. God is good and he never has a bad day. There's never a moment when God's off. He's good and he wants to be good to you. He's gracious. Number three, he's the generous provider. Generous provider. Verse 32, it says, Now therefore our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, and it says this, who keeps his covenant of love. Would you underline covenant of love? So God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And we can trust him to always be faithful even when we're unfaithful to him, even when we can't see what he's doing. He is a faithful provider so I love the song, The Goodness of God, which is based on Psalm 23, which talks about God chasing us down to pour his favor out over us. He is a good God, and he's covenanted with us that he will hold up his end of the relationship every single time, every single time. And this week, in our, my email blast, and then Kimberly and I um, did a video on Wednesday that you saw, many of you saw, 
I talked about a moment that happened last weekend with us as, uh, for me personally where I had one of those crisis moments and uh, where I was uh, all of a sudden being tempted to believe that God wasn't good and that God wasn't faithful. And, and really it happened because we were taking Jordan back to college and uh, it was really, really there was a lot of consternation even about taking her to college uh, and down south into what I call COVID central. Um, and dropping her off in an apartment with three other girls to do online school. So in many ways, that just doesn't make sense. So I was dealing with all this internal angst over that. And then there were some relational struggles that happened because of our tension, because of supply chain issues where you can't buy things that you might need uh, to stock an apartment. And um, so I, at the end of Friday, I was morose. We're talking Eeyore on steroids. <laughs> I mean, poor girl, she had to be with me. <laughs> I was just morose, and um, and I was I was picturing this moment, and where we were uh, two years previously, where we had stood on the sidewalk of her college, and you know the way that they do this goodbye moments with parents is is they milk you all weekend. And then they have this emotional moment where you say goodbye, and it's highly spiritualized. And so we're all, all three of us are there, arm in arm, and we've written words on the sidewalk, words of confidence and hope and trust in God and what he's going to do and how he's going to work. And, uh, and I was just picturing us at that moment, and I was looking at the reality that we were in right now, and this is what I said to God. I said, God, that wasn't real. Where are words that, God? I don't see you. And I was wrestling with him, and finally I was able to go to sleep. And at 1 a.m., he woke me up because he needed to talk to me. At 1 a.m., he woke me up, and he said, Ron, you have a choice. You have a choice. Here's the choice. You can believe that I'm that God, and you can place all your faith in me and trust in me as that God, or you can choose to believe I've abandoned you. It's your choice. And it's going to change the trajectory of your life, which one you choose. 1 a.m., he woke me up. And I said, okay, God, I know what I'm choosing. I've been here before. I've not, this is not my first time to dance around this. I'm choosing you today to say, I believe that you are faithful. You're a covenant God, and you're going to keep your word. You're going to be faithful to me, to my family for generations. I may not see how you're going to work. I may not like the way that you're working right now, but I believe that you, work, that you are working for me and my family. So when we're, when we're freed up to be honest with God, then God's freed up to be honest with us, to talk to us about our circumstances and our condition. So let me give you the response now. Here's the response. Humble confession. Humble confession. That I would come before him and I would humbly confess my sin, my rebellion, my doubt, whatever it is to him. When we see ourselves for who we truly are, see our hearts for and our souls for who we truly are, and we see God for who he truly is, it leads to confession. 
because we realize that there's a gap between who we are and who he is. And that because of his grace and his mercy, he's allowed us to be in relationship with him. And it leads us to that moment where we confess so that we can be right with him and a relationship. And he's a long-suffering God. He's a patient God. He's full of mercy and his grace. And that's his identity. That's his nature. That is his character. And when we turn to him in humble confession, he responds with covenant grace. He responds with mercy. When we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all sins. People who read God's word are people who don't have to hide in their brokenness. That they're able to bring it out into the open because they know that only in the open can healing happen. Only in the open can healing happen. So instead of running and hiding, he asks us to run to him and confess our sin. And then I'm just going to leave this last verse. This is how 938, the chapter 9 ends, as we're going to pick up next week. It says, In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And next week, we'll take a look at that. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and let's pray. In our prayer time, I want to read this quote to you, because I think it's going to help. Uh, It's from Tim Keller. And he says this, We are more broken and sinful and flawed than we ever could have imagined. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we could have ever dared hope. I hope and pray that that's what you would believe. That as you confess to him, as you confess to him your weakness, your struggle, where you confess to him your doubt, where you confess to him your sin, where you confess to him your brokenness, that you realize that God is not mad. He's not having a bad day. That he's good and gracious and loving, and he has open arms to invite you in to his embrace into relationship with him. And God, I just thank you that we have the power of your word and the power of story to rely on, to know of your faithfulness and to know of your character and of your nature. And God, I just want to pray for anyone who's never said yes to Jesus. It's so essential, so essential to confess your sin before God and to ask Jesus to come into your life, to say yes to Jesus, to say, Jesus, yes, I want you. I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to receive your mercy. I want to receive your grace, your love. I want to receive your cleansing. I want to receive your power through the Holy Spirit. And I want to live my life in relationship with you for the rest of my days. Would you show us how to do that? And God, I pray that you would show all of us how you want us to live in a culture that's pushing and pulling away from you, how we can live for you and be a positive influence in our world because you are good, you are great, and we want to represent you well. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.